0: Good morning, if you were sitting on about row 6 and back, I want to offer an apology to you, Um, you just watched my daughter run down this aisle and I have talked to her several times so I'm apologizing to you now that that's what you got to see at the end of worship. So um, and I'll be addressing that again here in a little bit. Happy Mother's Day. Genesis 31 is where we're going to be tonight, or tonight. It's been a long day <laughs> at 11:25 in the morning. Uh, Genesis 31 was where we're going to be. How do you handle conflict? How, how do you handle strife and disagreement and discord? science and biology teaches us that we're we've got this what they call the peripheral nervous system and and it's peripheral because it's not central your central nervous system Something happens to it, you're going to have some neurological damage, some neurological problems. Your central nervous system consists of your brain and your spinal cord and all your nerves. Your peripheral nervous system is what helps operate all of the external things in your body that you do that are not straight down your core. And one of the functions of the peripheral nervous system is what we call the fight or flight syndrome. That's the adrenaline rush that you get when there's conflict and you're either going to put up your dukes and stand your ground or you're just going to kind of back away and go. That's what what you see uh, someone that's able to lift a car up off of someone uh, and you're like, how did that happen? That's a function of the peripheral nervous system. That's that blinding moment when in a moment of rage you say or do something that normally you would not do. That is a function of the peripheral nervous system. I am glad that as a society, in many ways, but not in every way, we have developed better ways of handling conflict. No, I'm not talking about Twitter wars, but I am talking about the fact that we've gotten a little bit past challenging one another to a duel, right? Someone cuts you off in traffic and you say, I challenge thee to a duel. And you get out there with your glove and smack him on the face and you take your ten paces. But it was told of Alexander Dumas, the, the, the famed writer of Three Musketeers and several other writings, and he was also an artist, that he got into such a squabble and such a, a spat with an up-and-coming politician that they had to challenge one another to a duel. Now, the issue was this up-and-coming politician was quite the marksman. He did not miss what he aimed for, and neither did Alexander Dumas. And so the two men were at a little bit of a conundrum, an impasse, as to how are they going to settle this duel, because they both knew that if you took your paces and fired, both would be dead. Well... They decided to draw straws. And whoever it was that drew the unlucky straw was to go into a room and shoot himself. Alexander Dumas, the famed writer, drew the unlucky straw. So he goes into his room. And he knew that it was supposed to be at the count of three the gun would fire. And so at the count of three, the people on the outside of the room heard the gun fire and opened the door expecting to find Dumas laying there on the floor, but instead saw him holding his gun and he says, I missed my shot. (laughs) Aren't you glad that we do not settle our strife and our duels quite this way? As people of the cross, you and I have been given a little bit different way in which we are to go. And we're going to be looking at Jacob and his life today. We're going to be looking at some of the outcome. If you've not been with us, we've been following along the uh, the line that God has promised to deliver his seed, his Savior, the one Christ Jesus. And so we left off last week with Jacob ending up with... A couple of wives. He worked for one and was tricked into the other. And since he was already married to the other, he then continued working to ensure that he would get the one. And he was given the one. But then that rivalry developed between the two sisters over children. Maybe I should have preached that passage last week for Mother's Day this year. But now the time has come that Jacob is seeking to leave. It says this in Genesis 31. Jacob heard the words of Laban's son saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's and what belonged to our father. He has now made all of this wealth. And Jacob saw the attitude of Laban and behold, it was not friendly towards him. A little conflict there. The Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah and his flock to the field and said to them, I see your father's attitude, that it is not friendly towards me as it was formerly, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet he has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. If he spoke thus... The speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth striped. And God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. And it came about at the time when the flock were mating, and I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. And the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I said, here I am. And he said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled. And I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise and leave this land and return to the land of your birth. And Rachel and Leah said to him, Do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned to him, reckoned by him as foreigners? For he sold us and has entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever it is that God has said to you. And then Jacob arose, put his children and his wives upon camels, and he drove away all of his livestock and all his property, which he had gathered, all of his acquired, which he had gathered, in put to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. When Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates River, and set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. Let's pray together. Father, we look at this family, and we look at your word, and we ask you to instruct our hearts today. Give us encouragement for how it is that we can learn from Jacob and what you did in his life to to be people of peace, to be people marked by, by, by right doing among others because we have been marked by the cross of Jesus. Lord, as you have healed our relationship to you through the blood of Christ, we pray, Father, that we would reach out and heal the relationships around us because of the blood of Christ, and that people would thus be able to see what is the great and mighty name of God doing in us. Lord, you are good. Words cannot describe exactly how wonderful you are. So we ask you that you allow our lives to be the description as we honor you. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. So here we go. Jacob's got a little family trouble, right? His, his father-in-law has not really been doing right by him. We talked last week as, as he was put in charge of the flocks that Laban said, okay, your wages are going to be, you get all the, spot, all the striped and speckled and mottled. All the deformed animals can be yours. Then what did Laban do? He took them and hit them. He had his shepherds pull them aside and put them. And, and now God is coming to Jacob and saying, okay, look, here's the deal. I see what's happening to you. He goes to his wife and says, his wives, and says, look, your daddy, he's he's cheated me. He's changed my wages 10 times. All right, I know you check your pay stubs, right? You you know you clocked in 43 hours last week, so you've already tabulated out how much you get plus those three hours of overtime, so you get your pay stub. You're like, wait wait a second, they didn't give me my overtime. What are you going to do? Just go home? They'll fix it next time. I trust my bosses. They'll get it right. Right? That's what you do, right? No! You go down to the HR office to payroll. Uh, Got a little problem here. As you'll see on my timesheet, I worked these hours, but on my pay stub, I didn't get paid for these hours. That's kind of what you do, right? And do you take... Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure you get that paid next period. Do you take that for an answer? No. You say, um, but today's payday. So can we make payday happen now? And then next month, you work extra overtime hours. And then the next month, you don't even work overtime. But instead of getting paid 40 hours, you get paid 30 hours that week. Well, the amount is for 30. Oh, yeah, we forgot to tell you. We've had a little bit of a reduction. And while you did the 40 hours, we could only afford to pay you for 30 hours. So we adjust your hourly to make sure that uh, hourly you made the 30 hours for those 40 hours. Who's sticking around for that? How many, how, how many, how many resumes would be going out? How many I quits would be said in those moments? Month after month, it shifts and it changes. It shifts and it changes and it continues. And and he says 10 times. 10 times. He has changed my wages. See, the reality of life is that we live with dishonest people. Now, I've structured this sermon a little bit different than, than, than other sermons that we've done. You know, normally what I've been doing with these um, narrative passages, we, we look at this, and then we've got a main idea, and then we kind of apply it. I've kind of got it all jumbled up and mixed up, so that way your, 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 your application is right there under your points. But the main idea we take out of this entire chapter is that only through God's intervention can we truly resolve the strife that's in our lives. That's that's our hope. Because Jacob is in a pretty bad place. Did he deserve some of it? Yeah. Was he kind of a jerk to his brother? A little bit. Did he deceive his father? Absolutely. Would we say he kind of got what was coming to him? We might. But what if we got what was coming to us? We're fine with someone else getting what's coming to them, right? We just don't want it for us. We, we, don't, want, we don't want our treachery. We don't want our sin to be, to be recounted and to brought into play. We, we just want it to affect them because of what they did, right? And, and then we get into family relationships or friendships or work relationships And it just seems to be a struggle. And everything we try just seems to not heal, but to add more strife. So we're sitting there thinking, all right, can I do the Alexander Dumas thing and challenge to a duel? Can we we take it to the fight or flight response? But what the Bible shows us is that when God steps in when he intervenes he is the one that fully provides the opportunity for strife to be resolved it doesn't matter if it's between you and your spouse between you and your kids you and your boss you and your coworker when we try to handle our problems the world's way we're going to continue to get the world's results But when we start to seek the face of God and handle things as he has directed, we start seeing the blessing of his hand, and this is what happens. We get into this passage, and the first thing we see is Jacob fleeing from Laban. He is on the run. He's talking to his wives. He's telling them, this is what's happened. God has come to me, and he has said, let's go. See, this narrative focuses on two direct conversations that God has with individuals, First, with Jacob in verse 3, he comes to Jacob and he says this. He says, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. Now, let's put ourselves in Jacob's scenario, his situation for just a second. Jacob is hating life. He loves having his, he loves his wives, he loves his kids, all that's good. But man, things are not going well on the farm. They're not going well at all. He's had blessing after blessing, everything his hand has touched. He's been kind of like King Midas of the sheep there. Everything he is touching is being blessed. But then Laban cheats him, and Laban cheats him again, and Laban cheats him again, and Laban cheats him again. And And it seems like the work situation is not going to resolve itself. It seems like it's always going to be drudgery and misery and wondering what we're worth because of the performance we have on the job. Some of you have been there. Some of you have felt that way in your workplace. Some of you have said, you know what? I have worked hard, I have worked hard, I've worked hard, but nobody above me sees the good fruit of my labor. Nobody cares. And, and Jacob says, i, I got to do something. Something's got to give. Enter God. Jacob, get up from here and return. I will be with you this phrase i will be with you in the life of jacob kind of forms a bookend for his time there in haran it started at bethel when he said jacob you're going into this land i'm going to be with you and i will not leave you until i have accomplished all that i am going to accomplish with you and now it's time to go jacob i'm going to be with you so how do i move remember he's got he's got a lot of kids right now right He's got four wives. Leah's given him six sons. Rachel's given him one, and their concubines are given. He's got 11 boys. Benjamin hadn't been born yet, so the the 12th one's on the way. He's got 11 boys and herds of herds and herds of sheep and goats. And who knows? And he's probably got workers and servants that have been helping him. We're, We're not talking about packing a suitcase. And just kind of driving to the next town over to catch a Motel 6. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a major move, a major. It's going to be noticed. So Jacob is now in a position where he has to decide do I obey God and trust that he will protect me, or do I stick it out with what I can control here? Everything that he could control there was already drying up and was already misery and already a system of being cheated. See, you and I know this for a fact, that being cheated by another person is the result of sin. We've all been cheated by somebody. We we, we have all had someone take advantage of us We have all had opportunities to see the deceit and the disgust of the world. It might have been an employer. It might have been a neighbor. It might have been a HOA. It might have been, you fill in the blank, insurance. It it, it might have been your husband or your wife. It might have been your kids. Being cheated by another person is a result of sin. But God has overcome sin. God, God has overcome sin, so so we can look at the cheat. We can look at the experience. We can look at the person with disdain, with disgust, and say, "You know what? I'm 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 going to get you. I, I'm you. You won this one, but I'm going to come back." Yesterday, for the first time in in my life, I sat down and watched a movie with my kids called Hook. I. I've never seen Hook, and some of you that are close to me are like, well, I've never seen Hook. I've just never seen the movie Hook. I watched it yesterday. So, so here's the story of Hook. Hook is about Peter Pan, who's all grown up. Everybody knows Peter Pan, right? You can fly, you can fly, you can fly. You know, you have Peter Pan, Tinkerbell. Well, Peter Pan uh, enters into the not Neverland world and marries a granddaughter of Wendy. You remember Wendy, John, and Michael, they were the ones that he took to Neverland in the original Peter Pan. Well, he keeps coming back to visit Wendy, and then he meets Wendy's granddaughter when she's like a teenager. He falls in love with her, kisses her, enters this world, marries her, and they have kids. And and he forgets everything about Neverland. He forgets everything about this former life. It's almost like there was a mental block that nothing ever took place before that. And he's not a great dad, but Because Captain James Hook was not going to let the fact that Peter Pan cut off his hand go, he comes into this world, and the real world, and takes his kids, Peter Pan's kids. And Peter Pan gets to Neverland to save his kids, only to find out that for 30 years, James Hook has been planning this epic war to seek out revenge on Peter Pan. And that might not be 30 years, it might be 30 minutes, but a lot of times you and I are spending too much time seeking how to avenge what's been cheated. We try to find ways that we can reach back into the life of someone that took something from us, that did us wrong, that said something wrong to us, or even just cut us off on 85. And we're going to figure out how we're going to show them. How we're going to get them back, how they're going to get... That's a result of sin. But God overcame sin. God overcame their sinfulness. And even better, if you're a follower of Christ, He overcame your sinfulness and you know it and you've tasted it and you've lived it. See, Jacob's running from Laban, but he's been given the command of God to go. Jacob flees because he knows he's been cheated, but God has given him a way to get past the cheat and the hurt. God's given you the way past the cheat and the hurt. But Laban wakes up the next morning and realizes that there's something missing. Something pretty big missing, right? It says in verse 22, when it was told to Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen and pursued him a distance of seven days journey, and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. And I know what you're thinking. Jacob had a three-day head start. How did Laban catch him so easily? You ever gone on a trip with women and children? There are a few unplanned stops along the way. I'm not saying that to be rude to me. The very first time, we lived in Raleigh when, I was in, when we were in seminary. It was nine hours and 15 minutes from the house where I lived to my parents' house. You go down Interstate 95, you get just below Savannah, you hit Highway 84, you take it all the way to Waycross, and in Waycross, you hit Highway 82, straight into Tifton, you get off on, uh it used to be Scooterville Road, but I think it's uh, uh, Old Salem Church Road, and you take Lower Ty Ty Road, and you take that all the way, and you turn right, and then you turn left onto Old Ty Ty Road, and that's where my parents lived. It was 9 hours and 15 minutes. I knew that my truck that I drove in those days, I knew that I could make it all the way from Raleigh to Hinesville, Georgia without having to stop. It was about four hours and 45 minutes. And the good thing about Hinesville was there was a flash foods and a crystal right next to each other. So I could get gas and get get food at the same time and make one stop. Well... I was going to take Christy to see the homestead one time. We'd get in the truck. And we had barely, barely gotten on Capitol Boulevard, right there, two miles from my house, when she said, when is our first stop? And so I told her. Well, it's about four hours and 40 minutes to Hinesville. And there's a crystal and a flash food. I always stop there to get gas and get... Get a Crystal Burger, because it was the closest one to Raleigh. And she said, that's not going to work. I'm going to have to go to the bathroom before then. <laughs> Can you hold it? No. <laughs> so we stopped in Lumberton, South, uh, North Carolina, which was a little over two, right about two hours. And then we stopped uh, in somewhere around Hardyville, South Carolina. And then we stopped... Stops happen along the way. And you multiply that out across four wives and all their children and all the livestock and everything. You're not going to move as fast as Laban with six or seven guys. He catches up. He takes them. And he gets there and he says, what Before he gets there, it says that God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream in the night and spoke to him and says, be careful that you do not speak to Jacob either good or bad. The first time God enters the picture, it's because he is sending Jacob. The second time he comes into the picture, it's because he's warning Laban. I know what you're up to. Do not do anything to this man. And so it catches up to him says, he catches up, caught up to Jacob, and Jacob pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to him, what have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like they are captives of the sword? Now, you remember, the daughters had a different take on this. Daddy has sold us. Our father has regarded us as, treated us like foreigners. He sold us into this marriage with you. That makes you feel good as a husband, right? I tell you what, man. you have my prayers if you're ever in a little bit of a disagreement with your wife and she looks at you and says, my husband sold me or my dad sold me into this marriage. It's the only reason I'm married to you. Woo! That one will cut like a knife, won't it? That's what they said. It's right there. Why did you flee secretly and deceive me? Why did you not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and songs with timbrel and lyre and not allowed me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now you have done foolish. It is in my power to do to you for harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. Man, Laban's not really happy. He catches up to Jacob and this whole thing is, is, is what a, why didn't you just tell me you were leaving? Now, we can all easily look back 4,000 years to when this took place and think, Laban, you haven't really given Jacob much reason to think that you would have done right by him. If Jacob had told you he was leaving, I'm pretty sure you would have not hired the lyre the and the flute. I'm sure you would not have brought out uh, the, the banquet dinner to send your family away. I'm pretty sure, Laban, based on your actions thus far, you would have done everything you could to cheat him out of the ability to leave. But it catches up to him. And he's rummaging through the stuff and it all comes down to Idols idols notice he says there he says you have indeed gone away because you long greatly for your father's house verse 30 but why did you steal my gods you remember rachel daddy went out to shear the sheep she took a little piece of the homeland with her she took the false gods the idols now, I don't know exactly what's in Laban's heart. The Bible does not tell us definitively or specifically what's going on in Laban's heart. But now he is rummaging through everything, trying to find these idols. And Rachel is scared. She even tells her father, um, Dad, I can't get off the horse because the way of women is upon me right now. So I'm not getting up. And Laban's like, Okay, I'm going to step back from that one. She was concealing. But what happens in this passage of Scripture is that God intervenes because only the living God could. And you and I have to grasp this. You and I have to wrap our minds around what happens in the face of the living God. And that is this, that vain pursuit falters before the living God. Laban is scrounging for everything he can, for something he can claim to take back. He's looking for his false gods. He had just been encountered by the living God. While I cannot speak definitively for everything that was in Laban's heart and mind, I can just speak definitively on this. None of these little trinkets he's looking for had ever spoken to him ever but God did he even admits as much your God appeared to me in a dream last night and this is what he told me now I know we're 21st century Christians and this idea of God speaking audibly and appearing you know somebody starts talking about that you kind of give them the side eye like like, where are you going with this What did you have before you went to bed last night? What did you eat? You you start asking these questions because you're a little skeptical. I can't explain everything that takes place in the Bible. I wish I could, but some things God has left for a mystery. But here's one thing I do know definitively, that the Lord who made us, the God who intervenes on our behalf is the God who speaks into the darkness to call us to him. And when you hear the name, uh, you hear the voice of God call your name, you run to him or you run from him because you might not like what he has to say and you might like your sin. The Bible talks about how we prefer the darkness over the light and Jesus speaks of those that would not come to him because their sin was great and they preferred their sin and that is still true but God still speaks to us and he still as the living God is the only one who can but we still run to all these other things to these false speakers these false comforts we're really, really bad at making gods for ourselves. I'm not saying we're bad as that that's a habit. That, that is one way to take it. But we just pick the worst things. We, we pick things that are never going to last, never going to make it. Here's this woman sitting on, on I don't know what they're made out of, bone, wood, rock, who knows? But man-made, the, 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 the Proverbs and the Psalms, the, David and Solomon, they, they mock these guys. They say, you're never going to hear them speak. They can't. They're made by a man. But we, we pick all these things. We, 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 we pick money. We, we, we pick success. We pick fame. We pick sports. We pick, I know it's Mother's Day and it's probably not the nicest thing to say, but we pick family. Moms, I pray, I pray, moms, that you have not sought all of your identity to be found in who you are as a parent, as a mom. I've never been a mom. I never will be a mom. Been a dad. Love being a dad. I fail at being a dad. And there are times when, when I fail my kids and my kids fail me. Moms, there are times when you fail your kids and your kids fail you. And if that is what we're seeking and our vain pursuit is to be the greatest mom, the greatest parent, the greatest husband, the greatest wife, the greatest this, the greatest that, it's a vain pursuit that's going to falter in the face of the living God. Because only the living and true God could reach into your life and intervene with you and say, I am the God who made you, the God who loves you. I am the God who is giving you sure footing, a place where you can stand. Man, we put, we put our hope and trust in, in money and finances. Did y'all watch the stock market this week? It's up and down. Like a fluttering butterfly. You didn't know where the thing was going. And, and if you've got your hope and, and money and finances, you're watching that and you're either really, really happy or just terrified. Because we make poor gods for ourselves. Vain pursuit always falters before the living God. Because it says here in this passage of scripture, there's 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 an opportunity for there's an opportunity for obedience in both of these. Jacob. You got to get up and go. So he got up and went. Laban, you've got to keep your hand off of him because I'm the living God. He is mine. And so Laban does it. He gets there to verse 42. It says, If the God of my father Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. But God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands. So he rendered his judgment last night. I want you to think about that for just a second. You've got Laban scrounging for pieces the wood that can't do anything for him. And Jacob standing with the abundance of God's provision saying, look what the living God can do. And maybe you don't have four wives and 11 sons and herds of herds and herds of herds, but you do have a life that has been redeemed and you can say, look what the living God can do. If he can do it in my life, he can do it in your life. If he can do it in your life, he can do it in your neighbor's life, in your family's life. He can do it in the lives of any one of us if he can do it at all. And he does. But then there's a covenant of peace that's made between Jacob and Laban says, Laban replied to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children who they have born? So now come and let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. And Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And so they took stones and made a heap, and there they ate by the heap. And Laban called it, Jagar said that word and Jacob called it Galid I like Jacob's word better Laban said this heap is a witness between you and me this day therefore it was named Galid and Mizpah for he said may the Lord watch between you and me if we are absent from one another and Laban said if you mistreat my daughters or if you take wives other than my daughters although no man is with us see God is witness between you and me Laban said to Jacob, behold this heap and behold the pillar which had been set up between us. The heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm and you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. For the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain. and He called his kinsmen over to the meal and they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. Early the next morning, Laban arose, kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them and Laban departed and returned to his place. See, this covenant of peace is very important for you and me because the covenant of peace is symbolic of what binds us together as Now I want you. I want you to hear me on this, because I don't want you to misconstrue what I'm saying. I'm not telling you to go out there and start like piling up rocks and you know making peace with your neighbors or anything, and or anything like that. What what I'm asking is, how do we demonstrate the peace that God has made in our lives? The Book of Ephesians talks about Christ, who is Himself our peace. He, He offered His life to provide peace, to be the covenant of peace that God has made with us for our sin. And it's because of the sacrifice of Christ in our lives that we are able to make this opportunity to have peace with others. And here we get into the life of Jacob and we get into the life of Laban. And they are seeking peace in this instance. It has not been peaceful. There has been strife and there's been hardship and there has been something wrong in their relationship from the very beginning. But what happened? God intervened. God intervened. He entered into the life of Jacob. He entered into the life, into this story, into the life of, of, of Laban. And I don't know if Laban went on and followed God the rest of his days. But what I do know is that God, that, that God had made himself so apparent in the life of Laban that Laban didn't swear by his idols. He swore by the living God that this would be peace. Ladies and gentlemen, this morning, Jesus Christ has been our sure opportunity and defense as people of peace he has established peace with us between him between god and man he himself bore the the weight of the covenant for us to have peace so that we could go and have peace with others you've seen a cross right now i'll be honest with you i don't know I wasn't there. I don't know if the cross looked like this or if it looked like that. I don't know if it was a, a capital T or a lowercase T. But here's what I do know. It does have two parts. A horizontal part, up and down. God and man, restored. But it's also bridged by a cross piece. I believe that represents an opportunity for you and me to live at peace with one Another, I believe that it is imperative for us to understand that as children of God, as children of God, peace should mark our means of operation in our relationships with others peace should mark our relationship now i'm not talking about like 19 some of you are looking at me funny because y'all lived in the 60s and y'all y'all saw kind of like that that different kind of peace that was a, i'm not talking about like walking around as like children of the field and peace and looking all strange i'm talking about just the way we love and allow the governing peace of god remember jesus is the prince of peace When God has made a covenant with us for peace, how can we not extend that peace to others? Or as Paul says it this way over in the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, Paul's addressing just general relationships with with one another. And he says this. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, be of the same mind towards one another, do not be arrogant in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise of your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, you follower of Christ, you child of God, you Christian, be at peace with all Be at peace. You got strife in your life this morning? You're struggling with somebody? A, a, a family member? A spouse? A child? A neighbor or a co What steps do you take to be a child of peace? T- to allow peace to mark the way you operate within that relationship. It doesn't mean be a doormat. But how do you seek peace? Maybe you're wrestling with peace with God. Maybe you're wrestling with with having peace with the God who loves you. And it's a struggle. The reason you're struggling with peace there is because there's sin that's unresolved. Quite quite honestly, that is the only explanation for why you are struggling with peace with God. There is some root of unresolved sin. And it might not be this, this gross, outrageous overly apparent sin that we could easily point to like murder or adultery or or shoplifting, but it could be some stem of unbelief that God is who he says he is. That God has called you to do something and you're stepping back. Some of you, God might have been pressing in your heart that he not only wants to save you, but he wants to use you to serve him, to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe not doing what I do, but in in your workplace, in your family, in your home. And you're not doing that. You're going to struggle with peace. God has made a covenant of peace with us through the blood of his son, Christ Jesus. But maybe you've got struggle and hardship in relationship. Let me ask you this morning to come to the foot of the throne of grace. Let me ask you this morning to come and kneel before the cross where God established peace with us forever. And ask him to heal your strife. To be a child of God. To live in peace as far as it depends on